episode two. Welcome to another episode of Looking Around the Corner, the podcast that celebrates the interesting ideas, people, and things. And today, uh, my guest is Dr. Samantha Nazareth. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you. <laughs> Samantha has an amazing, um, amazing list of accomplishments. I, I really even can't go through all of them when I looked at her LinkedIn profile. But, you know, in, in the, the ones that stood out the most to me is that she's a, she's a practicing medical doctor. She is board certified in gastroenterology, so GI. Um, she actually has been an advisor for numerous um, uh, medical tech or med tech startups and companies. And she is currently the chief medical officer of, let me try to get this right. I'll give it to you, Metamy. Metamy, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, in addition to that, she is, uh, she's my go-to expert on blockchain and pretty much anything blockchain, whether it's medical or non-medical related. And she has uh, really forged uh, a path for uh, professionals that, you know, inherently are not necessarily from the computer science or tech industry, uh, but rather being from the medical healthcare front, you know, into this really burgeoning space, uh, a technology space of blockchain. And, you know, we're definitely going to get into that. Um, you have such an amazing story that, you know, I'd love to hear from you, you know, what your journey was, what are the things that excite you? And, you know, really what, what, uh, what do you think the future should be in your eyes? All right, I'll, I'll start with how we even got here in the first place. <laughs> I would say, I think the, the doctor story might be a boring story because it's very similar probably to a lot of other doctors. I knew right away, I love science. Um, I was really obsessive about it. I, I remember even one field trip was for school. I think it was like first or second grade. We went to um, the Liberty Science Center, which is a big yeah. museum. And I, I, I was born and raised in Hoboken, New Jersey. So it was, it's in Jersey City, which is a neighboring I'll, I'll tell um, you a story town. about Hoboken when I, when I used to live there. Long okay. Time oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because everybody's like, you were born there? I say, yeah, me and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then the field trips are always like pretty typical. There's Liberty Science Center, Ellis Island, you know, like very classic um, New York City metro area type mm -hmm. field trip. So this one was Liberty Science Center. And I remember, I think at the end of the field trip, we were allowed to go to the gift shop mm -hmm. and all the other kids were, were stopping by the dinosaurs and all the like kind of cool things. And I remember I, I was like, just honed in on this um it was almost like a an operation type game but it wasn't really a game it was basically like you can build a skeleton and then all the layers of the inside so like all the organs you can yeah. place where they go and um but it was it was tangible right like it's something to actually hold and and kind of fill in the dots almost and I definitely was the only person that was really interested in that <laughs> specific box. So it, it came to me very early on. I, I have to say, was it, it wasn't pushed on me by any means. It, it was something that was, um, that I, I, I grew, almost grew up into and, and loved. And 
even had a placemat with like blood and guts every morning, eating like cinnamon toast crunch. And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> you were you were that kid. I was that kid. I was really, really into just insides, everything insides. So not surprising kind of the field that I ended up into, but if you're in, in, interested in insides, usually it's surgery, right? That's, yeah, usually. And, and I would say that probably most of uh, my field in gastroenterology, a lot of the gastroenterologists would probably say they really wanted to be a surgeon and then mm -hmm. pivoted sometime in medical school or after. But it's the same story for me. I, I really was just interested in doing something hands-on, like exploring things that you couldn't really see on a day-to-day. -day. I was always fascinated by things that were unexplored and things we just didn't understand. So of course the stuff that we couldn't see was inside of us. Of course, um, yeah. But I had um, in medical school and it even before that, I, I will say that I, um, I signed my life away to medicine very early on because I, I did the eight year program at Brown. So I mm -hmm. knew like very early that, that that was going to be my my career. So that was a teenager, right? And then you're in medical school and then you have paths throwing, thrown at you in terms of options. Um, I did the surgical rotation right when I was supposed to, like for all the wannabe surgeons, right? Yeah, like yeah. you had to do it, you had to structure it a very specific way. I remember it was like, you had to do that. it like, right? Like you had to do it like after internal medicine in order to like have good solid foundation and footing to be really good kind of med student for the surgical rotation. So I did all the like the steps like that. And um, actually during medical school, my my mother had colon cancer. So mm. that, that was sort of my first um, look into gastroenterology. I mean, it, besides having it in pathophys, you don't really get exposure. And then if you weren't doing your rotation in internal medicine and happened to be you know, happened to have a patient that you were following that had an endoscopy. It just wasn't as, I would say, it wasn't as visible as some other specialties like cardiology. I felt like, Definitely. you know, Definitely, yeah, like yeah. you were reading EKGs and everything um, related to cardiology was um, pushed forward early on. But GI was definitely something that I, I explored because of just what was going on at home. And I had to learn a lot about it early on, even before I entered clinical rotation. So after doing all the rotations, I decided and did the elective and ended up, you know, choosing that path. I actually really loved liver and ended up doing a transplant hepatology fellowship because um, I, I fell in love with the liver really. Uh, I was quite fascinated. I think I feel like it's an organ that's overlooked most of the time. Like it's not as sexy as the heart and the brain, but <laughs> it, it doesn't pump. A... It doesn't grow neurons no. and helps us no. think, but if without it, we're gone. You know? Yeah. It, it's so, um, it's just, it's a garbage can really, right? It's like meant to filter and, and do all this, um, back end work or it's not like the front of the house it's like the back of the house yeah. organ it's the workhorse um, that's what it yeah. is yeah 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 but when you see it doesn't work there there's a lot of problems yep. and just the pathophys I, I was always fascinated about 
about the liver, but then, you know, liver is very intimately intertwined with GI. You have to do GI mm -hmm. um, when you specialize in something like transplant hepatology. So it, it, it goes hand in hand. It's not very separate. Um, I mean, you could do liver without doing GI. Like you could just be really, really into hepatology and stay internal medicine, but like to reach that, that sort of uh, board certification and everything, you have to do both. Um, but yeah, so I, after that, um, I will say that once I finished fellowship, so that was two fellowships, right. And I ended up staying in New York city area mm -hmm. for both residency and fellowship. The world had dramatically changed. I would say, um, from the time that I signed up for the eight year program back when I was like 16 years old and then finishing training, like in my mid thirties, it was like, yeah. Oh, wow. People, uh, people don't, most people don't really understand how long of a path that is. Um, mm -hmm. And, and then they, I've gotten those questions when I advise companies and stuff, they're like, wow, you, so why do you want to do this now? And I'm like, well, I spent most of my twenties and thirties just doing medicine and getting established mm -hmm. and practicing. And it's really, um, yeah, it's we need a better PR campaign by the medical community <laughs> as to what exactly doctors go through to get to where they are. It's tough. It's it's definitely a tough road. I, I remember there were definitely some sleepless, tearful nights for mm -hmm. various reasons during either medical school residency was tough. Um, you know, parts of fellowship were definitely tough. I um Luckily I had good peers, you know, you can't really get through without having good friends and even mentors to help you guide. It's not a, it, it's not very, um, it's not an easy path and it, it's not something that you can do alone. That, yeah, that's really definitely. what um, I would say about like training. It's, it's tough. This is definitely tough. <laughs> it, uh, it, it's, <laughs> it, it, it takes a toll on you that I don't think people realize at the time, right? And then as 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 you move on in life and then you think back, you're like, oh my God, how how did I go through A, B, mm -hmm. and C to get and it's uh yeah, it's it's one of those it you go through the crucible of this that type of training and then you come out the other side and and you realize that now I'm not the same person that I was when I thought about getting it, you know, getting into this whole thing. And and the whole the whole industry changes. You know, by the time yeah. you come out, you're and I, I was like, man, this is, I was talking to my dad about it and he's a physician. And I said, this is not what I thought it would be, to be honest with you. And I thought it was going to be different, but anyway, that's. <laughs> you know, Everybody has their own story. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's just, and it, it wasn't so much me as more the environment had changed by the time I was done. I just started noticing some trends that mm -hmm. I, I never thought, you know, would be even possible at in high school that would change medicine forever. Like when we were done with training, it was either go to private practice or you work for the hospital and become a researcher or you're, you're basically in academics. It was that it was like academics or private practice mm -hmm. academics being, okay, you could be involved in teaching or research. And then private practice is obviously you have your sure. own exactly. office, but there was nothing else like it, but that that was sort of what we all assumed to be right going in mm -hmm. and I started to realize that actually there's 
definitely a growing sector called technology that seems to be in everywhere, like literally everywhere. Um, it was really hard to ignore. I would say that besides, and obviously the electronic medical record was probably the first um, door into tech for a lot of doctors, but even outside of medicine, walking around in New York City, it's a walking city, right? So mm -hmm. you, you can't help but not notice what's happening around you, stores that are popping up, businesses. And I started seeing a lot of tech businesses in the healthcare sector. Mm -hmm. So there was yeah. this intersection of tech and health and wellness, you name it, like anything, medical health, wellness, it was booming in such speed that it was really hard to ignore, really. It was, uh, yeah. Yeah, very difficult. And I, you know, went into private practice after training. So I, I definitely saw both aspects of medicine. Obviously, when, when we're training, like we're in the hospital, so we see everything academics and and doing a residency and two fellowships I was in it for a while <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know what that life was like um but I didn't know what private practice was like until I got there so that that for me was a learning experience too was just to see how how things were so different like just your mindset is different when you go into private practice yes it is. um you don't it and of course there's hybrids, so I, I won't say it's black and white in either direction, but not knowing what it was, um, it's almost like, again, a steep learning curve as when you start at residency, like, oh, wait, I have to learn like a new skill. This is, this is different than anything I've been taught. And there's, so, there's no, there's no real training for it either. There's no you know, business and you know, practice management and just just things that you, honestly you would think that the vast majority of physicians go out into private practice as opposed to academics so why don't we you know get people in to teach them some basic foundational you know like a, like a mini mba if you want to call it for physicians and just never it still hasn't happened no i you know i wish i would have learned more about it even as early as medical school just basics of financial literacy. I came out with six figure loans. I mean, I, yeah, I, I was That's... at Brown for eight years and it, it definitely was not, um, cheap <laughs> to put it lightly. Yeah. And so even managing that debt was, um, it, it's just to, just to have it and have it hanging over all the time it's, it is quite a burden. It, it's definitely hard. It's very to, much. Well, it, yeah. and you, imagine that we take on debt in order to go into a profession that, you know, we're counting on the fact that, okay, we're going to have some employment, you know, we're going to be able to make at least, uh, you know, enough of an income that we're able to I mean, make our expenses and save some money and maybe, you know, take a trip trip or two in, in a year, like stuff that I think most anybody else would want in their life, you know, to, to have that peace of mind. Now imagine all these, all these people that come out and they have debt and then they go into either careers or, or jobs where they're constantly laid off or they have unemployment, but mm -hmm. guess what? The debt's still there, you know? And, um, you know, one of the 
you know, recent things that, you know, hearing that, you know, student debt may be forgiven under the new administration. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I paid off my loans last year after mm. many years okay. and oh, it was, it, it was <laughs> I'm funny sure you because, love to see that zero balance. On your oh, and I even called the, the company and I said, I want it in writing. Like you need mm -hmm. to send it to me in mail. And I, I'm, I have this just in case, because I couldn't believe it because it was, it was always there for so many mm -hmm. years. And I, I, I just, I feel for people that can't make their, you know, salaries or income or whatnot, and they still have to pay all this off. And it, it's really, I mean, it's a horrible weight to have for, for such a long time. It is, it is. And it's not uncommon either. And yeah. that's why I think that having some sort of financial literacy or business skills early on, especially since so many medical students are in debt when they come out is important. Like you have to do it. I, I, really, I would have done this early, even in high school, I would have been interested in learning a little bit more about it. It's um, yeah, it sets you up for a different, a different place when you finish. I think it when does. you have that, and of course there's great, you know, Jim Dale with White Coat Investor. I, I, I was following him for a long time and I learned so much just having a physician perspective on financial issues mm -hmm. and, and just getting a grasp. But of course, it's always like, I wish I would have had that earlier to say, set myself up a little bit in a better position now. Yeah, I, I think I think it's still something that's lacking. I mean, I'm glad that, you know, there are all these other physicians that have gone out and, you know, built platforms mm -hmm. and sort of had made a brand for themselves and and all these other, you know, like residents and fellows and, and attendings, even like myself. I mean, I, I, I went back and did an MBA a couple of years ago and, you know, it, if nothing for the reason that it was packaged and it just changed my viewpoint on how to think about you know, money and, and, and business and, and solving problems. And, and I don't know, maybe that's, that's something someone needs to come up with, like a, a startup or some type of uh, something that's more, you know, uh, tech savvy so that we can, you know, start this education at an earlier level, like the pre-med level, or like you said, mm -hmm. even from the high school level, I think whether you go into medicine or not, this, this helps in pretty much all walks of life. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what you, you can, you can become an artist, but you may want to know how to make your own art studio or monetize your, your talent online. You know, there's so many things that go into uh, a person's craft, so to speak. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it, it all revolves around money somewhere. It does. It's, it, and I was even thinking about college debt um, and people coming out of college. Mm -hmm aren't guaranteed anything right and they have all of this debt yes. after college without a job it's it's really unfortunate and um it, it's like growing up a college degree was like everything right you have to get mm -hmm. a college degree and now it's it doesn't guarantee anything it has to be okay now what like what what other skills are you going to be using because just having a bachelor of arts or science isn't enough anymore. It's, it's, and even this year, particularly with the co you know, COVID and the lockdowns and students not, you know, being on campus and, you know, everything's virtual. If, if there is anything at all, it really makes you wonder, you're like, well, what exactly am I paying for? You know, if I'm a, mm -hmm. let's say a parent, you know, I have two, two kids, we save up, 
for their college, you know, like I think any other parents that are able to. And, but I keep thinking about it and I'm like, they both want to be creative. They both want their own YouTube channels. They both want to make, uh, you know, like, like their artists are at heart. I mean, they're, they're, they like science. They like, I mean, when I was a kid, all I loved was science. Like every space and astronomy and biology. I mean, just complete science geek. I no no artistic bone in my body. And these kids are complete <laughs> opposite. And they're making like CD or you know, tracks and, and whatnot. And I'm thinking like, what is a college education really going to get these two? You know, like, I mean, mm-hmm. they should get it. I think maybe just to check the box, unfortunately, but that's all it is. It's like checking a box nowadays. And, and the money is that's involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine a you know, 50,000 a year, let's just say, imagine what you, you could do for your child for $50,000 a year or, or for other, other kids, you know, or, or someone who, who doesn't have the means. It just seems like such a unbelievable system that people have been paying into without any guarantee. I mean, you know, if you, if someone came to you and said, Hey, I want you to invest 50,000 in my company. The first thing out of your mouth is like, okay, so how, how am I going to make a profit? Like, how am I, what's my ROI on this? What's, you know, when am I going to get my money back? We don't even ask those questions when it comes to higher education or, or you know, college education. Right, right. And that, that really strikes to the need for other, you need these other skills. Like Definitely. you need to understand what debt is and what debt isn't. All the aspects of financial literacy needs to be given out, taught, early very early and yeah and i i take back my initial that's in med school i probably should start in high school especially before taking on debt in in college i mean i remember those promissory notes i had assigned oh yeah semester and and (laughs) i remember those like oh my goodness going to the loan office and you had an an exit meeting as well when they compiled and i had eight years worth i said oh my goodness i can't believe I'm coming out with that number of, you know, and the amount of debt. It's, it's scary. It is very scary. It's scary. It's scary. And it's, um, I, 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 I really hope that there is student debt forgiveness with this new administration, because it's, it's just this weight that just keeps people down, you know, that, and, and psychologically and from a mental health perspective, it, it's a huge deal. And, and frankly, it's, you know, what we hear about in mental health and, you know, people being anxious and depressed about what's going on financially in their lives. I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, I think there's so much more that no one talks about. They, they, they don't know where to go and whatnot. And I mean, I, when I, when I wrote that last check, I mean, that I'd never had that feeling before in my life. I was like, I don't owe them anything else. <laughs> like, it was so weird. Like I, my wife had to be like, I was like, just check this, my math on this. Like, I don't know them a nickel, right? And she's like, she's like, no, you're done. And it was like, I was like in, you know, like in the clouds. I was like, wow, this is great. I don't owe someone the money. And mm-hmm. it's 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 a great feeling at the least. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it just shows that there's so many other skills that we have to learn. Even, even if we become doctors, we have to learn other things <laughs> besides medicine. And it's almost because we put our heads down and just study for so long. And then obviously residency and, and if a fellowship is done, it takes a, 
obviously a lot of your time, there's really not much place to learn any of these things yeah. until maybe you're on an elective or you're done. It, it's just doesn't, and for good reason, right? You're you're training to be a doctor, right? You're not exactly. you're not doing something else. This is this is what it's meant to do. You're supposed to do all the hard work. But then you realize how far behind. Like I realized I was so far behind my friends mm -hmm. from undergrad and all the skills that they've had in terms of like interviewing, negotiating. They had already been through Definitely. all of it by the time I was out. And it was I was really in awe. Like I felt like um like a baby basically that needed a lot of coddling and the food has to be brought to me because I can't survive on my own almost. I, I was blown away when I first started learning about marketing, like what is marketing, right? And what I thought it was, you know, all throughout my life until I started actually learning about it, I realized I was completely wrong. You know, for me, in my mind, I was like, okay, there's ads and they want to say I do something and that's it, that, that was marketing. And then I really started learning about it. And I started asking people who, you know, did marketing for a living. Whatever. And I realized, man, my God, why did we not learn this? Like, this is so mm -hmm. important. And, and, it's, and it, 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 there's a certain scientific rigor even underneath it, like how, you know, net promoter scores are calculated, how you, you know, calculate you know, customer acquisition. I mean, there's, there are metrics that there's quantifiable uh, sort of methodology. In it. And I, I said to myself, I was like, this one thing, if we had learned just this one thing, I think it would have really helped a lot of people, regardless of whatever you go into. And 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 I, I thought about that and and what you just said right now about like you spend so much time just figuring out what you have to do for your specialty or whatnot. So then, how does someone like yourself, who you know, you said you had a lot of debt, you you spent a lot of time in training. Um, how does someone go from private practice to the chief medical officer of a company? <laughs> because a, a lot, you know, for a lot of people, I mean, I, I have a friend who's a, uh, who's a lawyer and he, he's in the same rut because he's like, I did all this work to become partner in my, in my firm. And then, but I, I think I'm kind of done with it. Like it's not in, you know, fulfilling and whatnot. And I want to do something else, but it, um, but, but by that time in life, you have other responsibilities, you're, you're sort of mm -hmm. embedded in your professional career or whatnot. How do you make the change? It's not, it's not easy. Yeah, I think everybody has a different reason. And mine wasn't unhappiness. I've, it really came from a place of curiosity. Mm -hmm. I've always been a very curious person. I've been that person. I mean, my mom would tell you that I was always the why person like why does this happen why is this happening and as a child obviously that's really annoying I think for anybody around that child especially <laughs> when there was no google to verify no ipads right back then nothing nothing because I could have sat with google and had all my answers right but oh, yeah. you look to your to whoever's around you, the adults basically to be <laughs> <laughs> the source of all truth I don't, yeah, I know what you mean. So I was always that child. I, I did things, um, I was very fearless, I would say. Um, even physically, I did things that most people probably wouldn't have done. I just always had this like adventurer type spirit. So I think that already, um, and my, 
I'm a big observer of, of people and the environment. I love going into a, let's say, you know, let's say the most uncomfortable situation, which is like a networking event. And I could just be there and just observe people for the entire time and be very entertained. It is pretty entertaining, actually. Like if you need to fly on the wall and you're just like, watching and you're just like, I wonder, <laughs> let me see. I think they're talking about this, but we'll just make it up. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, you realize you, you just notice things that are happening. If you already have that quality about you, like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm an observer, I'm very curious at heart. And those talent skills, you know, flaws, maybe um, they don't go away. And I, I've always had that in me. So after doing the work, right, to get to, okay, I'm done, yay, you know, get, get your board certification, you get to practice. I think um, what I started to realize was that just like I said, the world was changing and either you want to change with it or you kind of get left behind. Mm -hmm. And I never wanted to get left behind anywhere. I was I played sports. Um, I was not good at sports ever. Like you've never seen me in person, but I'm five one and you know, hundred and something pounds. So there are very few sports that that physique is really good for, but I I was always just passionate and had the enthusiasm. So I was allowed on these sports teams. Um, so in essence, it's like, well, you could start out as a beginner anywhere, really, if you have mm -hmm. the energy and enthusiasm. So that that's sort of the the mindset you have to think of of changing from. And maybe you don't even have to change really, because I'm still in medicine. But mm -hmm. just having that beginner mentality with enthusiasm and energy, even if you feel like you don't have the skill set yet, right? I mean, in sports, like you either have it or you don't really like. <laughs> It's, yeah, um, it, it shows up hard. pretty quick. Yeah, like I like, can't grow. <laughs> it seems like you you have, I think, what is it called? It's like the begin, beginner's mind. There's a name, I think, for it, like, I think called Shoshin. I have to look it up. But it's like this mental model, like people like yourself have of the world. And I guess I have it to a certain extent because I'm always thinking about, okay, something new or you know, curiosity, you know, mm -hmm. is, is always there. And I, you realize, I mean, I realized after a while that I'm probably an oddball thinking this way. Like, it seems like a lot of people don't think that way. They, I think for whatever reason, they, they don't, or they're okay. They're comfortable, you know, mm -hmm. in their situation, or sometimes they don't like their situation, but it's, it's like a Stockholm syndrome or something. Like, it's like learned helplessness. And they're like, okay, you know what? I'm, that's it. This is my fate, you know? And it's, I love that you have that mindset because I, I, I wish more people had that. And I, and I don't know if this is something that you can teach or train someone to have, or is this just innate? You're just kind of born with it. What do you think? I don't know. I, I think it's a little bit of both because innately, I was always an extreme, um, it's like those adventurer people, you know, that are always skydiving, bungee jumping, that thrill seeking. I yeah. have, I always had that in me that I, I was always yeah. kind of like that thrill seeker. I really love like, ooh, all this stuff that just gets a rise and 
now, like I said, mentally or physically, it doesn't matter. And, um, but it's not, there needs to be a yang to the yang, right? Like it Mm -hmm. can't, everybody can't be like that. There's people that I get along with very well that are deeply rooted and Mm -hmm. are like, like order, um, structure. And there's a certain safety to that. So I could appreciate that. It's just not who I am as a person. So if I'm being true to myself, I'm not, I am more of a freedom seeker, adventurer seeker, thrill seeker than the structured person or the person that wants to be uh, doing the same thing every day. That, that was never me. And I think, so that, that played into your curiosity, like you said about, you know, the tech, the tech world and medical uh, medicine and tech as a as this sort of newer construct almost like that we we were yeah. really trained in as, as physicians initially it's and i'm sure that will change that now i have noticed even at my alma mater there's a digital health elective which i i was hmm, wow on. like i wish that was <laughs> there when i was you know but it, it wasn't a thing it wasn't uh, as popular or even really in your face back when I was in med school, but there, mm-hmm. we're, we're starting to see little sprouts of that in the education during med school. So um, it came later, right? It, it was just, it, it was with the time dictated. So when I came out of training, that's when I started seeing the changing landscape of medicine and in mm-hmm. so many different levels. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I was like, just curious. It came from you know, to answer your question from a little while ago, it came from a place of curiosity and I had to feed that curiosity at some point. So I, I asked people, that's really the first step I think is asking the people who are around you that have or are doing interesting things. I remember I reached out to people that I, I was in training with that had were doing really unusual non I wouldn't say it was straight non-clinical, but they were definitely using their degree in, in a tech capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and a, tech, a non-traditional path, which is what yeah. they used to call that when you didn't right. go right into practice, you're non-traditional. You yes, know? yes. I hate that word though. Like I don't like it either. Phrase. I never liked it because I said, well, it's, I mean, like, I think about like, you know, mathematically, it's, like, it's just a statistical function. It's like most people go here, some people go there. Well, doesn't mean they're abnormal it just right you know it and the not and I feel like it was very biased because the people that are teaching us they didn't do any of that stuff they're they're all you know kind of pigeonholed into one way of thinking and one way of doing and I I think just exposure to you know like when I was a fellow it took until a fellowship that I remember McKinsey and company you know management Mm -hmm. consulting firm they were recruiting uh, at the Johns Hopkins campus in Baltimore, which is where I did my fellowship. And so they just randomly emailed me out of the blue. And I thought it was like a spam email. And I was like, <laughs> McKinsey, and, you know, and I looked it up and I was just like, I don't know why they want to talk to me. And, uh, and the guy took me out to lunch, the, you know, the, the, the representative. And he said, well, we're doing this because we want, we want you to come work for us. And I was like, wait, what? I, I, like it totally was left from left field. And he explained, you know, how management consulting works and why they would hire someone like me. And to be honest with you, it was very, very appealing. 
but at the time I just had other responsibilities that wouldn't allow me to travel as much, you know, and, and as, as much as they are required to travel. But man, if someone came to me like the beginning of med school or the end of undergrad or, you know, I think I would have hopped on in, in two seconds. I would have been like, oh, so you're going to pay me to go around the world and meet people <laughs> and do business for you guys? Oh, great. I'll do it. You know, and, and you know, McKinsey has such an amazing alumni network that they're, they're in so many other, you know, industries and fields and stuff like that too. So I, I just thought that it was, it was, I was like, why am I learning about this at the end of my training? Like, why right. couldn't I learn this so much earlier? Yeah, I mean, management consulting was definitely something that I remember was an option that other people were pivoting to or towards in residency. I, just like you said, McKinsey would recruit and there were a couple of people that ended up doing it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know what, I mean, now I have an idea of what consultants do, but back then I didn't really quite understand what that all yeah. meant. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's, it's funny because um, I, I've become a big believer that the younger you are and the more range of stuff you can get ever exposed to, you know, from a positive standpoint in your life, just like anything, you know, experiences and things and arts and you know music and science and doesn't matter what it is but as a child that imprinting that you get I think it it has such a long range effect that we don't even know how to quantify that at this point um, mm -hmm. and I feel like that curiosity that you have as that kid it it it's it almost it grows right it's like it grows like a plant and then a tree and it has all these crazy you know branches and stuff like that and and I wish I wish industries were more like that, where they would be okay with the people going through them, you know, and their training and work that they think a little bit non, you know, non-traditional, as they say, right? That we talked about, and be, because that's what actually makes the leaps, you know, in innovation, technology, industries. It's not the people that always think the same; it's the mm -hmm. people that are the ones that say, mm, "Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'm going to go this other way." And you fail and you fail, it's fine. I mean, failure is, that's I think good. I think you, you at least tried something and you learn from it. But I, I, I wish we encourage more people to just take risks and, and not, you know, kind of vilify them and not call them non-traditional or whatever, you know, pejorative terms there are about that. Uh, so hopefully that changes going forward. Well, that's, we're taught to not take risk as well as physicians. Mm -hmm. It's really um, not in our training for good reason, again, that we're not, we have to evaluate all the data in front of us and we, we have to make a decision based on the information. And, and it's really to avoid risk, right? Like you're always trying to avoid anything risky in the yeah. end. So it's in almost direct conflict with an entrepreneurial type spirit of, let's do something, even if it's risky, it's so against what's being taught, again, for good reason, how to become a physician and make clinical decisions on life and death issues. But yeah, that, that's, that's definitely not, um, that type of mindset doesn't, uh, isn't taught by any means yeah. in medical training. 
I think, um, yeah, so, so I'm curious, again, going back to our, you know, sort of discussion on how, how did your path end up in, in tech? Yeah, so curiosity, you know, killed the cat, right? <laughs> Not yet. Um, but the curiosity led me to have conversations with people that did do that, you know, non-traditional path. And uh, I re remember one in particular, and really, I mean, people are, are helpful, right? Like mm -hmm. this idea that, oh my God, I don't want to, especially if you're reaching out to someone who knows you. So it's not really a cold call or a cold email. It's yeah. someone in your network that maybe you're not speaking to every single day of your life or you haven't been in contact with, but they know you and they like you enough to jump on a 10 minute, 15 minute call. Um, mm -hmm. I found that people were more than generous with their time when I was starting to like kind of open my eyes and say, what else is out there? Yeah. And what's going on in the tech space? So I started with that. It was really reaching out to the people that I knew. Um, and, and again, very helpful information, basically where I should go for events and networking. And I hate saying that in COVID because obviously that all has um, changed now, but mm -hmm. it really then led to a lot of in-person networking. So going to events, I remember someone said, they're like, Sam, if you wanted, you could be at a networking event related to health tech or digital health every single night of your life, if you wanted that. Well, you, you're in New York, right? So yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, you're, I mean, it's the, the old adage you used to be in New York. I lived there for two years and it used to be, you could just eat at a different restaurant every night and you'd never yeah. see there twice. And I think this is, now the health tech is like that too. Yeah. And I had no idea. I thought it was just Silicon Valley, Boston. Yep. And obviously now that's changed, but back then that's what I thought. I had this impression of New York being just, all right, it's financial, fashion, media, you know, very discreet sectors and not tech, but that was mm -hmm. completely false. It was so false. And I needed someone to tell me that basically to say, here are the things that you need to go to just start showing up. Yeah. Even if you have nothing to say, at least you're in the vicinity or in the presence of other people that are in that field that you're interested in. I mean, you, so you set yourself you apart immediately, right? Because some of these events you go to, and where I used to go, you know, down in Atlanta on um, pre-COVID times, you may be one of the only few physicians or MDs that do what you do and have a certain skill set or interest or whatnot. And then, you know, there will be other engineers and, you know, finance people or whatnot. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're like the big fish in the small, small <laughs> pond, as opposed to when you go to, you know, medical conferences and stuff like that, it was like, well, everybody has an MD right? or a DO or something like that. So it, it, it's a great way to differentiate and you know, to go to these events, it, just being there, like your presence mm -hmm. is differentiation enough. Yeah. It, I would say that I definitely did not feel like I was the big fish um, by any means because there were people that were like, you know, on company number five with big exits. So I, I definitely almost felt like the little fish. But it was, again, like we were talking about having that beginner mindset. I was a mm -hmm. student again, and I loved being a student, really. Like, yeah, 
I could be a student my entire life if that was a job. <laughs> I think I we are learning. Right? In a way, we are. The, those of us who are willing to do different things, mm-hmm. you have to. I mean, no one gives you the playbook, I realized. Yeah, it's that constant learning mindset. So definitely um, it, it led to me going to a lot of in-person networking. I, I wouldn't say networking events. They were events that happened to have like people chatting afterwards, <laughs> before and afterwards. It wasn't like labeled as such a networking event. It was, hey, do you want to hear like a cool panel or some cool speaker speaking about something within digital health, health tech. I use, those terms are so confusing every time I use them. um, They are. I I know some people like one versus the other. So I kind of always throw both just in case uh, there's e-health, m-health. It's all an umbrella term, right? Like it's it's like saying, I love science. Okay, well, what in science do you like? (laughs) Just just throw a pebble in the air. It'll land somewhere on this huge field, you know? There's a huge world underneath let's say let's pick one term digital health right and Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that and but going and speaking to people going to these events and speaking to people that there is a lot that falls underneath digital health or even Mm -hmm. healthcare technology and I think when you so for something tangible right if you go to these events the other thing is to get involved with the events just to help out really like if like you said if you're the only doctor there you could be on a panel you Mm -hmm. could be a judge on you know during one of these pitch events especially if you're the only doctor you provide that clinical expertise to say that okay this solution does or does not work in a clinical setting Um, because how many companies have you seen that once they're out and perhaps they did some market validation, but at that stage, it actually doesn't work in anybody's clinical workflow as a physician. Oh yeah. So that, you're kind of that common. person. Yeah, yeah. It's very that becomes common. Very common. Well, it's like technology looking for the solution as opposed to the other way around, right? Where mm-hmm. we have this problem. Can you help us? Type of thing. Yeah. There's a lot of solutions to non-problems, as I say. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I think so as, because I think engineers, <laughs> engineers tend to, they, they love that creation that they have, or they just geek out on, you know, some new algorithm or some new, some new advance. And we're like, no, actually we'll, we'll take what you have off the shelf and let's just see if that works first. You know, mm-hmm. we, we don't need the bleeding edge of, of this or that, you know. And a lot of it is timing and mm-hmm. that's really important. I, I have to acknowledge that, that there are companies that would have done better if they just waited for the market to be ready for it. So there's that aspect of timing, having mm-hmm. the market validation, um, all these aspects. But as a doctor, I would say you do bring that clinical expertise to a company that, especially early on, probably they don't have any physicians on their executive board to give that clinical mindset or even perspective on saying, okay, yes, this is something that would work. Yeah. I think, and and it seems like there's 
a need, at least now in the in COVID times, so to speak, right? Where we don't have these in-person networking events and it's uh, everything's guarded, rightfully so. And and even after you know enough of the vaccine is is distributed and administered, there's still going to be a little bit of a cautious, hopefully a little bit of a, a caution and people getting together like the way we used to. I think it's going to take a while. I think it's an opportunity for the emergence of platforms that can put together, you know, technical and non-technical uh, experts. Um, and I've seen a few of them because, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat. I have a few startup ideas where I'm sitting there like, okay, now I hit a wall because I have no idea how to actually either code this or, you know, build a prototype or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it would be so nice to go into like a, uh, this one site, one platform be like, it just matches you up and says, oh, this is what you're looking for. Well, here's someone that can do this for you. And, and I think those kind of, those kind of opportunities are out there for someone that wants to build something like that, because mm -hmm. there's, I, I think as time progresses more and more healthcare professionals, particularly physicians, they're really looking for maybe a different path or something that gives them a different type of meaning for what they do and everything is tech now right i mean er, i mean anything you can i mean my my coffee mug talks to my phone and it keeps my coffee warm i mean i would never have thought i would have a coffee mug like this in my life so if everything's going that way it doesn't make sense not to go with that flow and i, I feel like if we had more resources to connect with tech, the tech community on the prototyping and infrastructure side, it, it could be amazing. I mean, it, there could be some really useful solutions that come out as opposed to the hundreds that come out in a, every every year or two. And we're like, no, we don't really have any use for this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're, you're starting to see this crop up globally where other cities are becoming these innovation hubs like Berlin, uh, Tel Aviv, Shanghai, you know, there's different areas now around the world that are having that sort of spark where they're melding in the capital with the mm -hmm. talent and the resources, obviously legally too, like that helps any, any laws that help foster that sort of innovation for that location. Um, and I, I think it's, it's not going to stop there. They'll, well, we will continue to see other cities pop up outside of the U.S. that are really interested in doing innovative things as well. Um, you, as you were going through this journey of, uh, I guess, pivoting or transitioning into your, you know, tech, the tech roles you have, were you, were you, did you meet a lot of resistance or any resistance in saying that, well, you're a physician, you know, stay in your lane type of thing. Because I've, I've heard this, I've heard mm -hmm. some physicians tell me this, and I, I don't know how common it is, to be honest with you, but it, I, I get the feeling sometimes that there are some groups or some parties out there that they don't really want you to get into their space. I don't know what, if they feel threatened or whatnot, but have you had that type of experience or have you heard I of it? I haven't. Uh, I, yeah, personally, I haven't. I've heard that that had, has happened, but I, Thankfully, yeah, I haven't okay. experienced it. And if they, you know, I, I don't take offense to anything. I, I have pretty thick skin. So 
if they did say that, I would just say, you know, it's not for everybody. I, I get it. Like this changing, integrating, melding of two worlds is not for everybody because it's not a clear cut path. Mm-hmm. It's not like you do these steps and then you get here. Cause that's really what medicine was like. It's mm-hmm. you complete undergrad, med school, residency, fellowship. Like it was a very clear path. And sometimes the unclear is not really attractive, right? Like this, let's see, you know, if I go here, again, you may not get an ROI and you have to be okay. Like mm-hmm. you have to kind of be okay with doing things that really don't materialize. But I, I found now being in the space for, you know, a good couple of years that you just have to be patient. It's not as cookie cutter as medicine is where yes you put your four years into undergrad your four years into med school and things will materialize at this set amount of time sometimes things don't materialize immediately but -hmm. perhaps a couple of years down the line they they end up doing like I said timing is everything especially outside of medicine and you just have to be and I I'm probably the most impatient person ever <laughs> and I so I've had people tell me to, to be patient that I've I've definitely been called yeah. out on but I do agree with them because I am impatient and I'm like I'm doing all these things and nothing is happening <laughs> yeah it feels like that sometimes well I could tell you this podcast just launching this thing I launched it like a few years ago and for a couple various reasons I had to take it down and now relaunching it it is a very humbling experience contacting people to try to be guests. Just, you know, you're, you're kind enough to say yes. You get all types of answers. I mean, just it runs the camp. I mean, everybody's for the most part very nice, but it, you feel like, wow, I feel like kind of how I did when I was trying to get my first observership as a pre med <laughs> student back in undergrad. Like you're, you're sort of like, you're, you're sort of politely begging, like, hey, uh, can you? you come on I think this is going to be a really voice. big thing like one day there. <laughs> yeah it's 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 humbling that's that's the best word to describe it but I like it though because it's a very um again if you have that student that beginner's mind mindset then you can stomach it if you don't though your ego gets in the way and I think as physicians you know some of us develop an ego they're like, well, I am Dr. So-and-so and I am, and it, it's not just physicians. You know, I have lawyer friends that have talked about this, I, you know, as people kind of ascend in their, in their, you know, rank, so to speak, there's that, t- that, that ego really grows out and you have to really, mm-hmm. you, you got to really contain it or, or channel it a different way. And, and I think if people did that, they, they may find more happiness in what they're doing than, <laughs> than necessarily complaining about um, but when you, you know, it, when you were going and change, you know, getting into the tech space and whatnot, you, you, you mentioned all these different hubs now, you know, like the innovation hub and whatnot, mm-hmm. you know, you, you traveled a lot. Uh, I, I know you, you've told me in the past for, for both you know, career and, and just, uh, for the love of traveling, I guess. Um, what is the, where, and you named some cities, but where are the go-to hubs both right now and in the U.S. and internationally that as we kind of emerge from the COVID, you know, pandemic mm-hmm. and people start traveling, 
cautiously at least, where should one focus? If you want to launch a company, you want to find investments. Um, Silicon Valley, to me, my impression is doesn't, I think they look for different things. I don't, I'm not sure they're the most health tech, digital tech, digital health friendly ecosystem there is, but I'd love to know your thoughts. I really can only speak to what other people in the field are doing mm -hmm. because I, I've really established myself in New York City, mm -hmm. personally and professionally. So yeah. I can't, I could only assume things that are happening outside of New York City. I will say that, yes, for hubs in the US, from what other people are doing, Boston, Silicon Valley, New York City, and then now also Nashville, Austin, Denver, there are other cities that are creeping up that are establishing themselves as, hey, you can, you could do this. And it really needs, you need the melding of a couple of things. You need the, like mm -hmm. I said, you need talent, right? So the talent mm -hmm. has to exist close by. And that could be talent from an engineering standpoint, a business standpoint, clinical, but really clinicians are everywhere. So that's not really the rate limit, limiting step in terms of finding talent, but it has to be a place that has some sort of talent. So usually there are major universities close by um, and hence the reason why those, right, West Coast and um, Boston have really led because they have some major institutions that, that really attract talent. And then on the, on the other, besides talent is capital and that's where New York kind of rises, right? Like mm -hmm. everybody knows there's money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's investors. There's there's people that want to put money into these companies. Definitely. So you have to you have to find a place that also has the capital to infuse in these companies. So again, like these even the these non-three cities, right? Not not um West Coast, Boston. West Coast is really like Silicon Valley, et cetera, because it's now really expanding beyond that. But uh, Boston, New York City, but these other cities that have creeped up as, hey, we can we can also be a place, have the talent, have um, and provide resources in order. I now that everything is remote, mm -hmm. um, things have been more equitable in that sense of now to everybody that you don't have to live in cities for to get something done but mm -hmm. I would say if you're starting out somewhere it's definitely hard um, to start out I would say and not meet someone in person mm -hmm. and establish those yes I've, I've established relationships this year all remotely but it's almost like well eventually we're, we will have to meet in person I don't think definitely. that Definitely. that will ever go away that there's something in person that can't be replaced ever by this it, it just we're not there yet maybe you know when we have digital avatars and we can interact in a digital space fine but for right now we're not there yet and we we do have to convert that virtual experience to an in-person something interaction so at some point yeah you, you might have to go to these cities and and interact with people um perhaps it's not that you have to live there every day right that's different than what it used to be yeah but making these 
in-person connections will still be important. So that that I would say is is still, um, and then globally, you know, technology, right? Like these guys will probably change. <laughs> <laughs> I would say like, yeah, I have to like, you know, have the hair in a specific way to like cover these guys, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well. The, oh yeah, know, there's that too. <laughs> I you can pull it off. My head is so is is tiny that I I can never put anything on top. It just falls off. I need like kid size hats and sunglasses. So, um, but yeah. So outside of the U.S. are like those those cities that I mentioned. So Tel Aviv, Berlin, Shanghai, have have really become other non-us innovation hubs and a lot of great companies are coming out from there mm -hmm. so i would say you know it's it's definitely don't sleep out like on these other countries in order to be really familiar like to become sort of an expert in something that you've tended towards right like 3d printing iot like you name it you really have to look outside the us like also you just yeah. can't be honed in on only us centric companies. Yeah, no, that, those are great points. And when you were, I guess, uh, as you were making your way through the, you know, the health tech or digital health, um, sort of ecosystem and how, how did you know that you wanted to, um, you know, become CMO of, of, of the company you're at right now, but, but more, more than that, uh, you know, we, we have to get into a discussion about blockchain because that, you know, that's, that's an area where you, you know, a lot about it. And, and I feel like there's, there's so much hype and misinformation about blockchain, even on a like non-technical level, just like what it is, what can it be used for, what it is really not. Um, I think you're, you're, you're one of the best people to ask about, that, especially, you know, healthcare applications, because it seems like people like to just slap on terms sometimes when they're founding a company and then you realize, well, I'm not really sure what this actually does. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. What's your, what's your take on that? So I, I'll, I'll speak to the blockchain. So blockchain has a bad, speaking of marketing, it has a very bad PR. Very, um, very bad. <laughs> yes. It it's, I will start by saying that, um, blockchain does not equal Bitcoin though. Right now, Bitcoin is in, you know, yeah, it's on in the limelight. Yeah, exactly. Right. So this for right now, it's on everybody's minds, but that wasn't always the case. And even the beginnings of Bitcoin, people will remind you that there were a lot of illegal things that were happening <laughs> using Bitcoin. Great way to launder money. Right. A very but, great way to launder money. Yeah. As also I say, the internet can be used to do a lot of illegal things. Yes. Like I could be doing something illegally right now, but I'm choosing I think we're having a little bit of connection issues. a little bit samantha you there thank you you might be frozen well 
to repeat it. All right. So, sorry, what were you saying before we had a little technical glitch there? Oh, yeah, sure. So, I was saying that it's not what the technology does, it's what mm -hmm. we do, what us as human beings do with the technology, right? Because the yes. technology doesn't do anything. It's what we do with it. So, like, I use the example of the internet. Well, yeah, I, I use the internet to send emails mm -hmm. and do this podcast, but not everybody is doing legal things on the internet. Does that make the internet bad? No, definitely right? no. Exactly. It's just, it's, it's a tool. So you have to decide how do you want to use that tool? Do you definitely. want to use it to destroy or do you want to use it to create? Because this, using the same tool, you could do either, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, to me, the internet, the, the, the power of it is that it essentially amplifies human uh, behaviors and proclivities. So if, like you say, if, if you're a person who's positive and you want to do positive things and build and create, there's a ways for you to do that on the internet. And then just the complete, op I mean, it's, it's, philosophically it's the complete range of all human possibilities can happen through the internet which is mm -hmm. i mean that's revolutionary but but in the same light when you think of like these type of technologies like blockchain i think i think there, there could have been a little bit better pr about, <laughs> about what it really its power is it, it that's what i think it it has a bad pr attached to it and We'll see, you know, hopefully the tide will change. And when we have other things other than cryptocurrencies to show mm -hmm. how can this yeah. actually affect and, and really change for good. But I, I would say that if anybody's interested, obviously Satoshi, you know, the creator of Bitcoin, his, her, or they, their white paper <laughs> would be an interesting place to start but it is just one application of blockchain, right? Mm -hmm. It's creation of a cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is one of them. But beyond that, right? So take cryptocurrencies out of the equation. So why is it even interesting for healthcare? And I think that the basic way that I explain blockchain is it's creating a history that we can all agree on without having to trust each other. Yeah. And if you think about it, okay, well, what types of data points are important to historically track? And then that's when your mind expands. Okay, well, I could think of many points in healthcare. And obviously the thing that's easiest for us is to think of something that affects physician and patients, right? Cause that's, mm -hmm. that's what's in our face mostly. So on the physician side, is I would say credentialing, um, not just for employment. I, since I'm in private practice, I've had to do insurance credentialing multiple times because I've changed locations, even within the same city. Mm -hmm. yes. And I could tell you that it's, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody to do insurance credentialing. So the people who do insurance credentialing that are non-physicians, I have a lot of respect for because I've done it and it's not fun. I It's painful, very painful. It is very painful. And I will tell you this, I did it 
and because of a glitch on their end on the payer end and it was a top three insurance payer mm-hmm. um i was out of network for nine months wow and i didn't i did all the paperwork that was necessary and trust me i am very very careful about where to check these boxes because i know any mistake can lead to you know basically unraveling of everything and it was a pair that i've been a part of so it literally was just a change of location um but because of their end through some again human error i was out of network i spent tons of time on the phone um taking down names sending handwritten letters you name it to the point where i actually ended up showing at their headquarters i looked wow. them up yeah i know and and if anybody has ever done this which i, I don't know i don't know of any physician that's ever done that <laughs> you're you're, I, you're the first i was so determined to get this error fixed that i looked up their headquarters and i said oh they're also in new york city so i will show up at their <laughs> i will show up at their headquarters and of course if anybody has entered one of these big buildings in new york city you can't just walk in exactly you have to go through security and so i just presented myself as who i am and i said i have but remember i was on all those phone calls so i had people's names so it wasn't like just this random you know me person coming in like oh, i yeah. need i need this fix it was i have been in correspondence you know in correspondence with this person you can call them up i have this paperwork i i just want to drop it off just so i did all of that but it it took me doing all of that which obviously was taking away from time that I shouldn't be spent I should yeah. be spending on patient care so there's time. that I was out of network so patients that were trying to find me in network they were like what happened you were my doctor and now yeah. you're out of network and I'm like it's not because of me trust me I'm not choosing <laughs> to be out of network it's it's the the insurance oh company God. so there's but you could think of like his if you, they just had data points stored in a specific way this would not have happened <laughs> it literally would not have happened what what do you think is the i guess the bottleneck in all of this in the sense that you know do you feel like insurance companies or, or just you know other you know, industries or what not do you feel like there's a hesitance in adopting this type of technology or do you feel like people that are coming up with these ideas like startups and you know early stage companies they're not able to elaborate like okay what is the problem we're solving here because i imagine that all the time and effort and resources that you spent right as as one person mm-hmm. trying to sort of correct your good name in the standing of the <laughs> uh, you know the insurance the payer and the for your patients number one most people would not have done I, I, or most people would not have even done even a, a tenth of that second i'm not sure the payers really understood the value of your time nor maybe they didn't care they're like oh okay she showed up to our headquarters with all this stuff okay maybe we should listen to her and okay let's correct the glitch i feel like the incentives matter so much in business that you know what what can be done to incentivize 
I mean, industries, very conservative in industries like insurance, mm -hmm. you know, to adopt this type of technology, which, I mean, it would make your life easier, it would make your patient's life easier, it would honestly make a lot of people's lives easier, even their lives, the, the insurance, you know, companies. And yet, I feel like there's a hesitance depending on what sector you're talking about. If it's healthcare, mm -hmm. it's like, let's keep pushing this boulder up a hill and let's have an avalanche come down at the same time. It feels like that it, at times. It has to be a great pain point. Like you said, the incentives have to be aligned in order for something like this to help and to be adopted. I will say that the payers are also feeling pains of fraudulent claims and the like, right? I think something like blockchain, again, it's history and it's history that you can agree upon without having all these middle checks and balances people yeah. right yeah it's it's just if anybody is like an old school accountant i always say like do you remember what they used to do with ledgers you know they would like put numbers with oh, this yeah. person and this person it, that's that's all it is except it's data right so that could mm -hmm. be either a historical event it could be uh, item that could be a data point or it could be a person that mm -hmm. could be a data point. So if you think about all of the admin waste that's happening now in healthcare, it really is about managing data. So just take blockchain out of the equation, right? And if we can manage that data, where it's flowing, who's receiving it, how is this verified as fraudulent or not? Because even, you know, I do acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of fraudulent things that happen in healthcare. And also along those lines are a lot of hacks. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw, but someone, I think it was, I forget where, but someone was actually harmed because of a hospital hack. Like someone hacked into their electronic medical record. I've, I've heard of this, yes. Yeah, so now it's like affecting people. At first it's like, okay, there's just a waste of money, but now it's actually impacting people who are hospitalized, right? If some, if the system is down for a great number of time and it's held hostage, um, people are affected. So there's issues with the record keeping, with keeping it also secure right mm -hmm. and safe that it's not all centered around in this like one honey pot where anybody can kind of get in there and just take take it all down um and it hits everybody i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but i was gonna say the security on the back end of you know the actual infrastructure for it uh, the it security it's really bad i mean it seems like we mm -hmm. we have probably like the one of the worst, you know, uh, sort of, you know, IT infrastructures there is for any industry. And mm -hmm. it's, it's just sitting there. It's like, hey, here, come, come take our data. Just here, we'll, yeah. we'll crack the door open a little bit because we don't know any better. And we don't, we don't hire the talent. We don't have the budgets. You know, um, I have a friend who's an, who's an IT professional and he works uh, at, a, at a Fortune 500 company. He, he said to me very, I mean, half jokingly, but he actually was serious. He's like, he's like, yeah, you know, no one wants to go into hospital IT unless you don't have a choice. Oh wow! He, he literally it's that said, bad. He he's been doing this about fifteen years now, and he has he always gets offers from 
hospital systems. And he's like, he's like, no, I have options. Like, mm. and I, I was a little surprised when he said that, but then I thought about it. I was like, yeah, it seems like every upgrade is a downgrade whenever something happens. And I, I don't know, like if, if, if we can have a, a technology like blockchain to help with some of these problems, I mean, just like you were saying with the payer issue, I feel it would go a long way, but I, I'm not sure how to get the buy-in. Like, you know, how do, how do you make that case so compelling that, you know, the CFO of a hospital system or, you know, the C-suite of an insurance company says, okay, we'll, 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 we'll pay you for this at the end of the day. Yeah, it has to be painful enough, right? That this solution is really the best solution out there. And a lot of, it's not just healthcare, a lot of people wanna see the validation of the technology like, let me see where, where it's actually being used mm -hmm. in this specific use case. That's what I hear all the time. Can you show me how it's being used now and how it's being applied to in XYZ specialty sector area? So it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of education, right? Saying, okay, well, cryptography isn't really like, brand speaking new mm -hmm. and I'm definitely not an engineer by any means so I, I will not speak on all the the beauties of it but it's been around for a while um but yeah I think part of it is that this specific technology is moving forward in finance mm -hmm. faster than in other other sectors so and healthcare is tough it's a it's a tough beast really to crack like there are a lot of legacy systems that are in place that were expensive, a lot of manpower put into it to uh, implement it. So it's it's hard to let go of one thing and move on to another when there's a lot of risk. And at this point, it, it's early. It's an, it's an emerging technology. It's very mm -hmm. early. So it's just something to keep on people's radars. That's sort of why I think it's interesting because if you look outside of healthcare, that's really where the magic is happening. And it's specifically in finance. Yeah. If you look more in fintech, it's like, wow, wow, we can do all these things without a bank, without yeah. having- it's, it's amazing. It really yeah. is. And it's really impactful for people who have been unbanked for how many years, right? For whatever reason. So it's- it's just interesting to see its applications outside of healthcare and healthcare is risk adverse as we, we spoke about earlier mm -hmm. for good reason. So anything that hasn't been validated multiple times, it will take a little bit of time for it to be implemented within healthcare. But if you think beyond just like, okay, I said credentialing on the patient side, electronic medical records obviously is a, a big um, use case for insurances, I would say is like claims adjudication, that whole cycle of saying a claim has been created, you know, who owes what and closing all of that loop, like the payers want to close that loop too, as much as the physician does, like whoever needs to get paid has to get paid in a timely manner, or whoever owes something needs to pay that other person or company, yeah. whatever, like that whole revenue cycle has to be closed at some point. And that that obviously has a lot of uh, pain points from different angles. And then even if you think beyond that as pharmaceutical companies, right? Mm -hmm. The whole track and trace, there's 
all these issues with counterfeit medications and counterfeit anything, right? Products, devices, you want to make sure that your product is the right product Mm -hmm. and it's going through and reaching the people and patients that need to need to have that product. So that's also another use case of being able to track something along the supply chain to say, this is what it's supposed to be in the end. Are you, are you seeing any particular companies or startups or, or even early stage, you know, early revenue stage companies that are looking into these particular problems that people should, you know, look at, be like, as an example, if at the least of like, Hey, here's, you know, here's a group of people that are trying to solve X, Y, Z problem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a coalition of um, payers that have gone together to deal with credentialing. Um, But even I would say outside of that, if you think about the basics of it, it's, it comes down to identifying somebody and mm-hmm. identifying something. So if you take that as a base layer, so that that's like identifying or identity, that could be applied to anywhere or anything. A big thing too is um, if you look at social media, right? Like who's who? Like who are the experts? And how do they get compensated? right? Like there's so many middle players. I always see these influencers and I follow fashion a lot. So Mm -hmm. um, I see these influencers that are almost leaking money because they, they don't get the full revenue of whatever they're doing. There's always these like cuts, right? And I'm sure in the end, this, uh, they would rather be paid more. If they're producing the content, they should be recognized and incentivized to do such. But there's all these middle companies that are getting in the way of what they're doing and who they're trying to target. So then that's like what they say, peer to peer, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're just trying to interact with another peer. You don't want all these middle players to get in the way and extract all of these coins. (laughs) It could be a coin, it could be fiat, whatever. But in the end, you're just trying to connect with another peer and engage in some sort of way that you don't need a middle person so it really could be applied to anywhere it also I mean, if you think of journalism that's that's a huge thing of of content creation but housing that that value for that journalist like whoever's producing that content and not having it be extracted in all sorts of forms it's just there's it's endless basically how this could be applied. But like I said, in healthcare, I would say those are like the top things that come to mind that we'll start seeing very quicker than in other ways, but also sort of on an educational part of the technology is fine. You have that peer to peer layer, right. Of transacting and, and having that ledger, that history taking Mm -hmm. that's already ingrained. So there's that. But then there's layers that are built upon that. So there's mm-hmm. smart contracts that you can build upon that, which are basically, if anybody's like a math fan, you know, if this, then that, that's basically what it is, is if exactly. this happens, then that happens, but it's all on code and it's all stored that way. So you can't argue with the code. It's math basically. Um, so you add that layer 
and then you add you can add a financial layer right mm -hmm. how you exchange and what what value that has so there's so many things that could be applied onto onto this technology that i i found fascinating because when i first was entering and like oh i'm you know really curious about digital health i said what can really impact a lot of people mm -hmm. yeah that, that's what i was more fascinated and it's not sexy by any means like yeah where is not sexy people want something tangible like wow i see this and it's so cool like vr ar mix mr now right like mixed reality uh augmented reality virtual reality that's something that's very tangible and it's very attractive i think because you can you can see the the direct effects and you can feel them but it's this technology blockchain yeah it's not it's not something that's like yeah i really wanted to be an expert in this and specifically in healthcare because it's like what that's so random right <laughs> it's, <laughs> well it's, it's it's hard for people to relate right i mean like i think apple spoiled us right with the, you know these airpods yeah, and the, I have the beauty here too yeah the beautiful aesthetics of it and so easy to use and i think everybody i think this is one of the issues that i've heard a lot of people talk about in the digital health space even apart from blockchain is the whole direct to consumer pathway you know to getting products out and adoption it's it's a different struggle compared to i mean not to say this is easy to make it's very hard to make these devices but when but you know apple apple like companies like apple they have that brand and they built it and they cultivated it and so now now it's like they just have to throw the pebble in the water and all of a sudden the ripples are huge and so they it's it's hard to make that argument in healthcare. It's it's a uh, you know people want the B two B enterprise sales because you know it's 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 a bigger chunk of uh, of revenue and and et cetera. And like you said, it's not sexy middleware and the, the boring things tend to become the things that may actually solve problems. But it's hard to market them as exciting. Sometimes you're just like, wow, mm -hmm. I we we have this amazing ledger, and someone looks at you like, what? Like, mm -hmm. that's it. That's that's what this is. And you're like, no, but you know, the, the downstream effects are, are are big, and and I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with with these type of technologies because they 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 don't they don't have that thing in hand. Where you're like, wait, what exactly does this do? Or, mm -hmm. or or even for people like yourself who are very well versed in you know potential uses, I think some people may be like, you know what, I I have a problem. For us, I have a solution for this a problem that may be helpful. How do I even, how do I get it partnered with an engineer? Like, you know, like, do you have advice for people that actually have ideas and they want to at least prototype or they want to even find out if there's a market for it? How do you even get a blockchain engineer in part of your, to get, to answer an email? <laughs> or you oh, know boy, it's yeah. it's it's hard right because it, these are different worlds that you're intersecting networking that's all i could say yeah a lot of this comes from word of mouth i would say if you look at all of the founding team members of mm -hmm. any company majority of them probably knew each other by some means and or knew of you know they were separated maybe by a second degree third degree it's like the kevin bacon you know six yeah. degrees of kevin bacon <laughs> it's probably not not that far yeah but no i know what you mean 
any any beginning company, those foundational folks usually knew each other or they have someone that they could recommend. So I would say it's definitely like, okay, just keep speaking to people within the space and eventually you'll land that CTO that you've been looking for. And, and you know, one thing you, um, going back to, we talked about earlier, but you love traveling and you've, you've seen a lot of parts of the world that maybe other people haven't, because I know on your, your LinkedIn profile, you said you like remote international travel. <laughs> so I thought it'd be interesting to hear at this point, both from a professional standpoint with these technologies being adopted, you know, outside the Western hemisphere and the U.S. market, but also to kind of understand like, you know, what parts of the world have you seen that both this type of tech could be use, useful, but also you would just recommend people going, you know, off the beaten path, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would say specific for physicians, I would recommend any sort of international practice mission, however you want to label it as. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to be at, let's see, yeah, two institutions that allowed for me to go and, and practice medicine outside of like a regular mission. It's usually a mission like, um, at least now that we're done, it's, it's almost volunteer, right? Cause you've, you've already completed your, um, your specialty and now you just want to give back in a very specific way to a very specific community. But I think early on, it's important to really see how medicine is practiced in other places. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where, but at least even I've been with, um, folks in residency fellowship that have never even left their institution, never mind like left the country to practice. Yes, so even just I know to some get people that, like that. You know that, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I knew oh, yeah. people like that. Like they did undergrad there and med school, residency, like you name it, and they, they're still there. And I just find that so, um, it, it really closes your, your vision very quickly because you, then you feel like this is the only way it's, it is and can be, but when you leave your institution, you leave the country, you, I, like I said, so I was involved with two institutions that gave me the ability to work in a medical capacity abroad, three mm -hmm. places, and they were very different from each other. But even before I was able to, to finish, you know, getting to the finish line, I was able to see, wow, this is, how medicine is practiced is different and here are the things that should change can change maybe that we in the U.S. are not doing properly mm -hmm. you know it gives you that perspective so that's even outside of technology you have to kind of open your mind to seeing what's happening outside of your institution outside of the country um, just to say like okay I've had some experience in in these other health systems or countries of, and how they practice medicine and what what's being incentivized there. So that's that's step one is just getting that perspective. And then for traveling outside of medicine, yes, it comes down to curiosity. Like not a lot of people really want to do the non-touristy things or be outside <laughs> the be yeah. outside the tour groups. So yeah. there is some sort of adventurous spirit that perhaps may you may or may not because i do recognize safety is an issue being mm -hmm. female um so 
you may not want to venture off too, too far from what's kind of structured and okayed by the tour group. But I think just observing, like going back to what we were talking about before is having that um, sit down, observe what's going on around you. You don't have to be doing something at every single minute when you're traveling, but just being able to sit down and, and slow down and just watch what's happening around you. That's really important as well. You don't have to go anywhere fancy to do that. You can literally prop up anywhere that you happen to be at and just take a look around you and seeing what, what are people doing and how it's different from home. It's, what, it's very basic. Yeah. So um, what's a very memorable or meaningful experience that you had that you know, may, may have changed your outlook on life or just had a very deep impact on you that you'd, you'd love to share? Oh boy. Um, I'm, sh I'm sure there's more than one, but I, I, I think people, people love hearing about, about that type of experience. I think it's very motivational. It motivates me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I would say it, it, it has to go back to medicine. So I'll pick from one of the experiences I had abroad while, while practicing medicine and it wasn't on a, a random travel, um, that at the very heart of medicine is that empathy, right? Mm -hmm. I remember um, rounding on, um, and, and the hospital was very, very humble. Like, I, it's Where nothing was this? that- uh, in, in Mwanza, Tanzania. So Tanzania, okay. Yeah, and it, it was basically like, if you look at the map, so Tanzania is East Africa, mm -hmm. and then Mwanza is close to Lake Victoria. Okay. So it's a little further west. Like, you know, most people travel through Dar es Salaam. Um, that's where their major airport is. And then you kind of have to go west to go to Mwanza. And it's a, it's not a small, small, place like there there is like a city center but the hospital was more you know mm -hmm. outside the beam track but I would say that yeah the hospital itself was humble um nothing that I'd experienced anywhere really but at the very root of it was just being there for a patient even though I maybe couldn't technically you know do anything GI at that time but um, I would say that just the oncology wards, it was definitely like, wow, it was end stage. Like this, this was not, people didn't have access to chemotherapy, radiation, none of that. It was just, it was basically palli palliative at that point. If hmm. someone that got cancer it was palliative and there were people there, and one woman in particular was my age and just seeing her, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's nothing to, to do other than that. You, sorry, before our, another technical glitch we just had, you, you were mentioning- Oh, that's okay. Yeah, you... 
you were mentioning a, a young right? woman. Yeah. So. Uh, there was a young, a young woman, woman. Yeah. and yeah, so it, she had, um, she was unfortunately dying of cancer. She happened to be my age. So obviously like that puts, puts you personally like, wow, what, what would that feel like? This is someone that's at your same exact age going through a lot. And any of that. Um, how's the, the connection? Is it still, I think I'm freezing. It, it, it got glitchy. Is it still frozen? Yeah, I think so. Oh no. Okay. We had a little technical glitch there again. Um, we were, what we were talking about was um, a meaningful experience you had when you were in Tanzania and how the oncology ward that you were, you were, you know, taking care of patients that was very different than what we experience here in the United States. And um, I think you want to continue from there. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll try to be fast about the story in case we get a. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll edit and post-processing. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so I, uh, there was a specific patient that I have in mind that who was the same age as me and really there was no option for her because there chemotherapy, radiation, none of it was, one was an option, but even two would have been an option if, if it was caught early. Um, so it was just really about making her comfortable. And it's almost like feeling naked as a doctor because you don't have your tools and your mm -hmm. toolkit and, and your toolbox, but it really goes back to what medicine it reminded me kind of forced me to go back to what what it is all about and really it's just about the human connection and and I, I would stay by her side and um I was there visiting as much as I could um off regular rounds just just to be there and really I think she appreciated that I think um I know I did I I got yeah. probably more out of that interaction than she did but um I think it forced me to go back to our roots of what being a doctor is really all about. Aside from the bells and whistles, what, you know, who, what it is about being a healer and, and what that means if you don't have anything to give, right? If you don't, mm -hmm. and, and literally like there were no things like pressers weren't a thing. So the people in the ICU were, they were really struggling. The family members would have to bag because the electricity would go out. Um, maybe someone donated Epi, but that was like far and few. So resources wise, it's like, you have to just use what you can. And, and really people in the military are, are great about this. They know how to be resourceful when there aren't any things. And I mm -hmm. realized, wow, I, I feel so fortunate in having to have been trained where I, where I did train, but at the same time, I was so unprepared to be in yeah. a situation where I didn't have all those gadgets and, and yeah, treatments. And obviously like now I have scopes. So you almost, you're so bare and you just become a human again. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's an experience you, you, you can't ever forget. Right. I mean, and I think especially this year, 
with the amount of um, isolation, you know, a lot of people have felt a lot of, um, I mean, people, I mean, hundreds and thousands of people have died just in the U.S. alone. Many of whom that no one was there on their, by their side. And, and I, I remember, you know, I've read a few stories, seen a few news reports of just the nurses and some physicians and some residents, and they would just sit by the person who's dying Mm -hmm. as a proxy for just, you know, someone, you know, their, their son or daughter or wife, husband couldn't be there because of the precautions and the situation. And this stranger, you know, two strangers essentially are, are there for, you know, one person that one, one of them as they, as they die. And, you know, to have that feeling as unfortunately the norm in certain parts of the world, you know, where you can't do anything. And like you said, you feel naked. You're just, you feel helpless as a, a caregiver, whether you're a physician, a nurse, or, you know, or, you know, any kind of healthcare provider. Um, and, and it makes me wonder that a lot of technology that we use, you know, in our, you know, our, our practices and whatnot, you know, is there any role for any of this emerging tech in these areas where, um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we run into the bureaucracy known as the Western hemisphere, basically <laughs> here, but there, um, I mean, what, what do you, what do you think? Like, you know, some, maybe not blockchain, but just something that's even not as high tech, let's say, uh, you know, low tech solutions. Do you see them being uh, implemented there? You know, what, what are the major pain points or, or, or bottlenecks in, in having, you know, more suffering alleviated in, in those type of places in developing areas of the world? Well, for one, they are implementing it because I think that that has almost a big, bigger impact for people who have had nothing. So you're, you're leapfrogging, right? Mm-hmm. When you don't have systems that you have to tangle with, mm-hmm. you're going from nothing very I think what's interesting is that in the frontier markets, emerging, developing markets, they are taking and adopting these emerging technologies. And it's really interesting to see it because for them, it's really impactful, right? If you have nothing and then all of a sudden you have something, that's huge, right? Like that's, and that leapfrog from having nothing to something that's so almost futuristic, it's easier to do that than having to deal with it, it. Let's say, you know, take for example, healthcare, right? If you have, if you're still on paper charts, even if that, right? Not even just kind of by memory. Yes, I kind of know this person from their history. Sure. And then you go to like blockchain-based electronic medical record. It's almost easier to do that yeah, than you know- having to unravel all of the other things that are, in place that have to be broken or changed almost in order to implement that something new. If you have nothing and you're implementing something, that's something 
happens to be something very advanced, it's so much easier to do that. Well, you know, it, this is a very akin to a lot of uh, developing nations. So India is a great example. You know, I'm, I'm from India and I have a lot of family still back there. And I saw, I mean, we, we went every few years or so and the landlines, telephone landlines never took that much hold there. Like in America, everyone had a phone in their home. It was, it was like, you know, mm -hmm. it was tethered to the wall. I still remember when growing up in, you know, in Queens, you know, we had this, that old beige looking whitish telephone that's nailed to the wall. And we had this mm -hmm. real long extension cord. No one, not many people had that over there. And then all of a sudden the, um, the cell, cell phone, the cell data infrastructure just blew up uh, internationally. And so now everyone has a mobile device, right? So you don't need it. I mean, you, you, I mean from, from the kids that would come to our car to beg for money, they all had Motorola's. Now, when wow. I saw that for the first time, I'm like, what is going on here? But these are like inflection points. You know, they, they, there was no legacy system to, to disrupt. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think it, it's, it's interesting because I, I've talked to other, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and, and, and even investors where this discussion comes up to where if, if those are the places of the world that have the needs, the pain points where, you know, technology can really leapfrog, you know, as you said, how, how can more people focus on those parts of the world as far as setting up companies that would help there? Because I think a lot of people, they look at America and say that, okay, this is a huge market, right? Because most founders are going to, they want for-profit companies. And I, I, I feel, and again, this may be my ignorance, how does one scale a company in an in a developing part of the world when just the simple equation of the one US dollar equals tens or hundreds of local currency, you know, it's it, people at the end of the day, they're like, well, how do I get paid to solve this problem? Mm -hmm. And in America, we have what we discussed, we have all these legacy systems, we have a lot of bureaucracy, we, you know, it, it, there's there's this old guard, so to speak, that you have to get past all these other places, like you say, in Tanzania, they're ripe for like leapfrogging. But yet, you know, why don't, why don't we see more investment there? And is it because you're not making the, the dollar or euro return uh, compared to whatever the local currency is? Or, or do you feel there's other factors? I think there's a couple of factors. In the end, you always want to de-risk your investments, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand the climate from a regulatory, also political standpoint, then it's a little bit difficult, I think, for an investor to say, sure, let me invest in a market that I have really no good handle on. So there's that aspect of, well, can the economy there be destabilized at any given point? Like that, I don't know, there's that. And then, um, just simply not knowing culturally what would be useful, right? If you, there, there has to be some sort of desire to affect change in a specific location that is not where you live, right? Either you're from there, you have some connection there somehow. Mm -hmm. There has to be some sort of understanding of what the people need and the culture, and if it's a cultural fit with the product. All these things have to be taken into place and. 
it's difficult to do that if you've never been to the place you don't know anybody from the place yeah there's there's all of those things that have to be considered but i think it is about de-risking the investment and having a, a clear handle of how um what that would look like in the future in terms of that particular country's economy and how how stable it is yeah i think these are good points but there are also opportunities right for for those who are willing to at least you know, venture out there and and learn and you know, go through you know network as you said I mean, networking is huge um and i think you know it, it's I think we've hit on a lot of great points in this discussion and it's definitely been very motivational to me. I'll tell you that if, if no one else, at least you've, uh, you've helped me see things a little bit more clearly. Uh, and so I hope everyone else that's listening and watching, they, you know, find the, find this very valuable. So I wanted to thank you for that. Um, how can people learn more about you? How can they follow you? Um, you know, um, contact you potentially if that's, you know, that's okay. Yeah, definitely. I'm always open. Um, and I would say social media wise, I'm always kind of hanging out in different places at different times. So right now, I would say LinkedIn is the best place to find me. I pop here and there into Instagram, but I would say LinkedIn is probably the best because I, I probably would see it a little bit quicker than anywhere else. I do have a website and I have, I'm on Twitter. But again, I think if you're if you happen to also be on LinkedIn, find me there. Sure. And I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, last question. What are you looking forward to most in 2021? More human interaction. I have to say it goes back to that story that I, that I had, that I, I was talking about that patient, but there is such a thing as zoom fatigue and at some point. It, it's nice to have and hold your loved ones, even though, especially those that you haven't seen mm -hmm. because of what's been ha happening. And obviously when things are safer and, and it's allowed really, cause I don't want to, you know, impinge on anybody's um, borders really, if it's not allowed, but I think just having that human interaction again, that's what I'm, I am craving at this point. <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh... I think a lot of us are, and and I mean, people have cabin fever and Zoom fatigue, and you know, there's all these new hashtags that have emerged this year that I don't think anybody would have ever thought we, you know, we would be in this situation. <laughs> but yeah, I'm optimistic for 2021. I mean, it's right around the corner, and two vaccines are out, probably another third on the horizon, and yeah, I'm I'm hoping by by next summer, you know, there's there's some somewhat of a progression towards uh, more social and you know social interaction, human interaction uh, that's mm -hmm. um, more positive and safer uh, than than it has been. So, Samantha, thanks so much for your time, for your insight. Uh, I think this is great. Um, uh, any last thoughts? I think it's. If anything, it, it just this whole experience from this year has really stripped us down to our human basic needs of we just need to be together, right? That's all that that matters in the end. Whether you're a physician, a patient, anybody, that's all we we could take from this to say that's really what's the most valuable thing. Definitely, definitely. Well, 
On that note, we are going to sign off. So thank you everyone for listening and watching.